Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to 2022. Food Junkies listeners, if you're still with us, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much again for helping us reach that 100,000 downloads before the beginning of the year. We're so excited to kick off the new season with our very first guest, Zoe Harkham. Zoe is a researcher, author, blogger, and public speaker in the field of diet and health. Her particular areas of interest and expertise are public health dietary guidelines, especially dietary fat, nutrition, and obesity. Zoe has a bachelor's and a master's degree from Cambridge University, and in 2016, she was awarded a PhD in public health nutrition. Zoe's thesis title was An Examination of the Randomized Control Trial and Epidemiological Evidence for the Introduction of Dietary Fat Recommendations in 1977 and 1983 a systematic review and meta-analysis. Zoe is known for being the first person to examine the evidence base for the dietary fat guidelines at the time of their introduction. She discovered that not only was the randomized control trial evidence non-supportive of the introduced guidelines, but that fewer than 2,500 sick men had been studied in the process. She's famous for no- coining the phrase, the eat badly plate, which became the eat badly guide in March, 2016. She's devoted seven chapters of her 2010 obesity book to dissecting calories generally and the 3,500 calorie myth particularly. She has asked the question, why do you overeat when all you want is to be slim? And this became the title of her 2004 later revised book, which is still unique in explaining physical reasons for overeating and how to overcome these. She's also known for journal article dissection. Zoe receives requests from all over the world, many from her own heroes, asking if she can dissect a particular paper. In this episode, Zoe shares her personal and professional journey, the Harkham diet, addressing physical and psychological cravings, how to eat to nourish ourselves, PCOS and food, volume eating, her observations of success, and our signature question, We're so very excited and grateful to have her here with us today. Welcome, Zoe. We are so excited today to have Zoe Harkham on the Food Junkies podcast. We know you're pressed for time, so we're just going to dive in. Can you share with us your personal story as it relates to food addiction, eating disorder, and professional story? You know, what was your aha moment? And then how have these two stories kind of come together to where you are today? Oh my goodness, that's some. Um, <laughs> I'll make sure this isn't an hour answer, otherwise, we won't get onto the rest. I mean, to cut a long story short, I think as a teenager, like every other female teenager, you get a comment, you worry about your weight, you think you're overweight. You're actually not that overweight if you look back and and look at it objectively, but you you have sort of distorted realities. I think it's probably way worse today for teenagers with Instagram and photos on phones and all the rest of it, which we just didn't have. So, you know, imagine it's much worse for them. But as a teenager, I became more aware of food 
made the mistake of buying a diet book that said, if you cut back by three and a half thousand calories a week, you will lose a pound. And I'm a mathematician. I ended up doing maths at Cambridge. So I should have done the back of the envelope then that said, well, hang on a sec. So I'm going to lose 104 pounds if I cut back by a thousand calories a day, because that's 7,000 calories a week. That's two times three and a half thousand. I'll lose a hundred pounds in a year. And of course you don't. But you have then bought into this promise of if you just eat less and do more up until the point you can't do any more because you're so damn hungry, you can't even do what you're supposed to do as a human being. And that was me as a 16 year old. So technically, if you look at the DSM definition of anorexia, I would have met it at 16. Underweight, period stopped, body showing signs of reacting to the fact that I just wasn't getting enough food distorted reality of size and all the rest of it. And what many people don't realize is that anorexia has a pretty bad outcome rate, way worse than any other mental illness, I guess you'd call it. But it does, it has about a 20% death rate because your body does not want you to get down to a fraction of the weight that you're supposed to be. There are other ways out. And I guess the way I didn't find, my body found it for me. A lot of people find that they go from under eating to overeating. It's a natural sort of yin yang. Pendulum goes one way, pendulum goes back the other way. And it wasn't that long. I mean, within a year, I recall, you know, this is some time ago, I I, I recall not being able to stop eating. And that then became fascinating to me. And at this time, I was up at Cambridge University. I um, ended up becoming the college president. Just before I was the college president, I became the women's officer. And at the time, we were interested in things like rape alarms, self-defense for women, trying to arm students and have them more able to defend themselves. But I remember going up to one of the women's officer meetings up at Cambridge Central, because Cambridge is a sort of collegiate system. So you're in your own college and then you go up to the centre and they had all this literature on eating disorders. And I remember thinking it and going, crikey, O'Reilly, this is kind of what I've been doing over the last few years. But I'm sure I'm completely alone. I'm sure nobody else is doing this. And of course, Cambridge, high achieving females. Mine was the first year intake or second year intake, actually, women since 1352. I mean, that's how behind Corpus Christi College Cambridge was. Hilarious. And I remember taking all of this info back to the college and there are only 24 women in my entire year. And I remember saying, look, I've got this stuff up in my room. If you want to come and get it, that's great. If you want to be anonymous, I'll just leave it in a pigeonhole. That's great as well. And 23 out of 24 women came to see me. And I just remember thinking, well, this is by no means unusual. But then I became fascinated by it because I never knew anyone who wanted to be sat in their college room when they're supposed to be writing an essay or better still, they should be at some college party eating six bags of crisps and then an ice cream gatto. It's like, why would you do that? This doesn't make sense. You know, I want to be slim. Why am I eating a packet of cookies? It just didn't make sense. And and because of my mathematical brain, anything that doesn't make sense, I, I wanted to investigate I was still finding myself very addicted to food at that time and trying to compensate one day by not eating. And then the next day you were so hungry that you eat all the wrong things. And because I didn't know then what I've learned since. And I guess the real breakthrough for me was when I went into my first job, I was positioned over in the US almost immediately. So I kind of touched base in the London office. And then they said they need resource over in Boston. Who wants to go? And I'm like, you know, I've got no ties. I haven't even got more than a month's rental on a flat. So, you know, count me in and headed off to Boston. And that was my sort of first starting to discover what was actually all going on. 
Because in America, unlike in the UK at the time, you had these most amazing bookstores. So places like Waterstones. I can't even remember some of the names of of the bookstores, but they had coffee shops in them. That was the thing. That was the, the amazing thing. So when you're over there on your own and you're working 12, 14 hours a day, if you get two hours off, you go to the mall, you go to the bookshop, you get a cup of coffee and you can just browse the books and then any that you'd like at the end of it. I mean, it was just amazing. It was like a library with a coffee shop and then you buy a book at the end of the day. And I started buying books. The cover was talking to me on things like food addiction, feeling ill all over, cravings, gained six pounds overnight. There were loads of things going on with my body that just weren't making sense. Headaches, feeling foggy, feeling like I'm sleepwalking, feeling not in touch with reality. And these books were jumping out at me. And they were in three main areas. One was in hyperglycemia, which was a term I'd never even heard of. And there would be books like Low Blood Sugar and You, Hyperglycemia, Is This Your Problem? That was one category. Another category was Candida, Yeast Syndrome. This was gut flora. I mean, gut flora is something we talk about all the time now. This was, you know, this was advanced stuff. And then the third one was food intolerances and this idea that you could actually be addicted to the foods that you were craving, but actually you'd become intolerant to them at the same time. So I remember just getting all of these books. And then when I got back to London and got a flat and sort of putting them all on the floor and drawing out passages where doctors were writing about, oh, patient of mine would be going to the 7-Eleven in the middle of the night and loading up with carts of ice cream and cookies and donuts and just eating insatiably. And I'm like, whoa, 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 you're onto something there. Don't stop. That's that's important. But they'd moved on. And then they were talking about yeast syndrome or candida or dandruff or thrush and, and all this kind of this. Like, no, 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 go back to that food addiction thing because you're onto something there. That's really important. And it was kind of piecing together this jigsaw of there are physical reasons why we're overeating. We're not mad. We're not insane. It's, this sleepwalking thing is not imagined. It is absolutely real. And then looking at the diet that they were all recommending and just piecing it together like a mathematical puzzle. It's like, okay, so they all say limit your carb intake. Meat is good on all of them. Fish is good on all of them. Eggs is good on all of them. Vegetables mostly is good on all of them, but maybe not too high in starch. Rice, some would say yes, some would say no. So it was just piecing something together that ended up becoming phase one of what ended up becoming the Harkham diet. I didn't call it that. That was kind of punters. And that's how it came about. And I remember trying it. And then why five days? Because any food passes through you within five days. So you can actually overcome a lot of the food intolerances within five days. So this sort of five-day thing was born. And I remember trying it and thinking I was going to die in the first couple of days because I was going through all the sugar withdrawals, flour withdrawals, caffeine withdrawals, crap withdrawals, and just literally practically bedridden. And then you'd reread the books and they say, oh, there's like a Herxheimer's die-off reaction if you've had bad yeast syndrome and this is what's going to be happening. So, you know, just touching base, say, okay, stick with it. And I just remember at five days, just this like this veil has been lifted off my head and I could see clearly, I could think clearly. I wasn't craving, I wasn't hungry, I felt in control. And I'm, I can't then say, hand on my heart, that was it. I never binged again because you do. You think, okay, I'm all right now. And then you have something and then you're back. And, you know, we can get into some of that with, with some of the other things we want to talk about, about what is it that can defeat people and complacency is one of those things. So, you know, that, that's a real danger. But I did then have the trick. I did then have the secret for me for getting out of this. 
And I then left the organization that I was in. I'd ended up in Mars Confectionery. Hilarious. So I ended up, I know I've worked in fake food. And then I went from Mars to SmithKline Beach, which of course is GlaxoSmithKline now. So I'd been in drugs as well. So I've seen everything from the inside. And then, you know, I'd sort of settled down in, in other organizations. And that's sort of my journey, I guess. I had a normal career. I ended up as a HR director at a global level working for big companies. And then about 10 years ago, got the opportunity to do what I really wanted to do. So left, started trying to help other people with their problems and did a PhD in public health, particularly in dietary fat. But I guess, I mean, the first book I wrote was in 2004 and that was called Why Do You Overeat When All You Want Is To Be Slim? Because that was the question that I was trying to answer. And it went through my journey, how I discovered the three conditions, how the three conditions lead to food cravings, what you're going to need to do to overcome them. And for a lot of people that then is, is their starting point. And it's then what can you do from here? How much can you get away with and how much can you not get away with? And I'm actually quite lucky. I can get away with quite a lot, but we'll get into all of that soon. That's that's where I am now. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. I think it's very relatable. You know, I got a smidge of it in the, the Harkham Diet book. You share your story a bit of it there. And I just remember thinking like, oh, this is so relatable and I could see parts of me in it. So thank you for sharing because I'm sure our listeners will also find themselves in your story. And that's one of the most powerful parts of having this podcast is just the identification and knowing we're not alone. So can we talk a bit more about the Harkham diet and physical cravings and, you know, like we just kind of give it to us in a nutshell. What is the Harkham diet in a nutshell and how does it address the candida, the food intolerances and the hypoglycemia? Yeah. I mean, so it, it was the discovery of those three conditions and then kind of stripping away all the stuff that the doctors were talking about. You know, yes, I'm interested in hyperglycemia, but I was much more interested in, in what it does for food cravings. So we only have a teaspoon of glucose in our blood at any one time. Pretty much any person, a teaspoon, four grams. You know, eat an apple, which has got probably 15 to 20 grams of, of carbohydrate. And you've gone way out of your normal range. And the body then has to get that back into normal. So the body calls upon the pancreas to say, go release insulin, insulin, take the glucose out of the bloodstream and store it away as glycogen for later on. And if you don't use it as glycogen within the next 24 hours, then turn it into body fat. You know, people don't kind of realize that. So what are the chances of the body getting that exactly right the whole time? And it would seem that particularly with, with fake food, not very high because the body just has not evolved to deal with, I don't know, Dunkin' Donuts. So you have a, a box of Dunkin' Donuts, goodness knows what that does to the physiology of the body. And the body just doesn't get it quite right. So the, the blood glucose level will dip slightly below where it was before you started eating the donuts. And that's when your blood glucose is actually low. You are in that hypoglycemic state. So you're a little bit cranky, lightheaded, maybe a bit shaky hands or whatever. That's when your body is going to physically drive you to get more glucose back in. So when you say to people, have you noticed that if you have one cookie, you want another one or you want have one donut, whatever. And they say, yeah, why is that? It's because you're doing this zigzag. You're going above the glucose level, you're going below, you're going above, you're going below. If you didn't have that first cookie, you actually stay in this quite stable glucose state. Now there might be other things driving you to overeat, but at that time, your blood glucose is not one of them. So then you'd look at the other things 
Candida is a, it's also called Candida albicans. It's a particular yeast, like any living organism, like a virus or like any organism within the body, it wants to survive. And it feeds off things like yeasty foods, sugary foods, starchy foods. Bizarrely, Candida also feeds off things like moldy foods. So vinegar, blue cheese, pickled food. And that fascinated me because I could remember sometimes that, you know, it wasn't just crisps and what you guys call chips and cookies and ice cream that I would want. Sometimes it was pickled beetroot or, you know, something really quite strong, like a coleslaw or something that's quite vinegary. And chips weren't chips unless you had vinegar on them. It was these little things that then suddenly made sense. And then, of course, food intolerance was really fascinating because I see addiction, see if I can remember this. I see it as as at four levels. So at the first level, you want a particular thing. Salmon is not going to do. You want, mine was chocolate. You want chocolate. You want confectionery. Then second level, you want more and more confectionery. So you don't just want a small bar of chocolate and then that's it for the day. You want a box of chocolates and then you'd have another box of chocolates later on in the evening. There is no limit to what you can eat when you're in this position. And then at the third level, you start to feel bad when you don't have the food. So that's what I was going through when I did the five-day withdrawal. So the day you wake up and say, right, I'm not going to have chocolate today, that's all you can think about. And you you start getting withdrawal symptoms mentally, physically, you get cranky, you get moody, you get miserable. You know, you have friends saying, geez, go and get a bar of chocolate. You, you, you know, you're not fun to be around until you go and get one. And then level four is when you suffer the consequences of the other levels. And I often joke, you know, if there were no consequences to eating junk food, I would eat junk food all day long. You know, if it didn't make us fat and it didn't make us sick, why would you not eat it all day long? Tastes great. You know, why would you not have croissants and ice cream for breakfast and then M&Ms all morning and then sandwich and, and crisps and ice cream? For, you know, why would you not? It's much quicker than cooking steak and salad or salmon and green beans, but it has these massive consequences. And it's not until we get to level four that we try to do something about it. So for most people, level four is obesity or or just a weight problem that would head towards obesity if you didn't fix it. Type two diabetes more commonly is becoming the thing that wakes people up. Just feeling bad, just feeling like you can't get out of bed in the morning. You've got no energy. Your get up and go has got up and gone. That is what then drives us to do something about it. But by that time, we are a level four addict. And food intolerance is is that process. It's that you're going to feel bad if you don't have the chocolate. But then because of of realizing that food intolerance, any food will pass through your body in about four to five days. Seriously, at five days, you are rid of the chocolate that you ate five days ago. You might still have this thinking that you want it, but you don't have the craving like you did five days ago. It really is so powerful. And then when you're much more capable of making rational choices, because you're not this rabid addict at that point, that's when you need to start engaging the brain saying, right, okay, I'm, I'm much more in control now. I I need to start making smart decisions. And that might be when you get into, I need to make sure I don't get complacent. I need to understand now, not just the physical reasons that I was overeating, but the emotional reasons that I was overeating, because now I don't quite have that physical drive thing attachment going on. You've still got psychological things going on. You will still be drawn to wanting those things. You will still walk into a gas station and 10 meters of brown racks are staring you in the face saying, come and buy me and eat me and all the rest of it. So you've still got all of that going on, but at least you're in the headspace that you've got half a chance 
of doing the right thing. And the right thing, of course, is to decline it because you know it's going to make you fat and it's going to make you feel rubbish. And you've got to keep hanging on to that, that it really is a case of it would take you two minutes to eat a chocolate bar and you're going to feel really rubbish in about 30 minutes. Yeah, you're going to feel like you can take on the world for the next 30 minutes, but it's the 30 minutes after that that you want to worry about. And there are other ways of feeling that you can take on the world um, and they don't involve a confectionery bar. So that's kind of what it was all about. It was getting you through. So I mean, phase one's just just five days long. People can stay on it longer. A lot of people like the, I guess, strictness of it, that it's meat, fish, eggs, vegetables, natural live yogurt, brown rice or porridge oats. It's what we would call a safe grain, but it's only if it's safe for you. If you find that one bowl of porridge and you want 10, then you don't have the porridge. So it's about flexing it to you even even from the the outset. I'm very much into, we're all grown-ups. We've all got to work this out for ourselves. And then in phase two, you move much more into just looking at real food and then the real food that works for you. And I know you wanted to talk about this whole sort of fat carb thing. So um, I just pause here in case you wanted to go somewhere else. I was just wondering, what are some suggestions that we might give to clients that we work with to deal with that psychological craving piece that happens, right? Because you get that cognitive clarity once you get rid of the drug foods and you have a level of abstinence, you make it through the withdrawal. And then you spoke about the complacency. And we always say addiction is the only disease that makes you forget you have a disease. So we know like, you know, there's definitely components of emotional eating. Do you have suggestions for individuals who have been able to, you know, get abstinent, but those psychological cravings are really deterring them in staying abstinent. Yeah. I mean, it's probably not a coincidence that when I ended up in my career, I ended up in human resources. So what fascinated me was why do people do what they do and and why do people behave and how do you get people working effectively together? We have to enlightenment, I think is is a really big part of this. So you have to, you have to understand where your emotional attachment to food has come from. And I scribbled down actually, because one of the things that we look at, I've done restorative justice sort of um, mediation. And they say that they're, they're basically only six basic emotions, interest, fear, surprise, distress, and enjoyment. Now, and I go through in Why Do You Overeat how any and all of those can actually drive us to eat. But we need to go back to our roots and if necessary, get some counselling or see somebody who can help you go through this process. But right from the minute that we're toddlers, we get conditioned that food is going to make us feel better. Food is going to cheer us up. Food is going to deal with any emotional situation that arises. So you fall off your bike, somebody gives you a sweet, they're there, everything will be okay. You fall out with a friend and they sit you down. And instead of having a good talk about what was the fallout and what can you learn from it and being developing emotional intelligence, we don't. We just say, oh, they're there, that's their loss. Let's go get some ice cream. So we just make this connection. Of course, the fake food companies love it. So every event, you know, look at one of those emotions, enjoyment, Every event where we're celebrating, whether it's Thanksgiving, Halloween, birthdays, Christmas, somebody is leaving at work, somebody's joining at work, we celebrate it with cakes, donuts, cookies, ice cream. So we're just building that association the whole time of this stuff is going to make you feel better. This stuff is going to deal with almost any emotion. You're angry at your teenagers, go get a cake. You know, your boss is being mean to you, 
go to the vending machine in the office because there'll be something there that will cheer you up. So I worked with clients very, very briefly just because it was a real insight into understanding how other people think and behave. But I, I don't do it now. And I don't think I could do it on a regular basis because it's draining. It's it's heartbreaking. You know, what you guys do is just utterly incredible. Hearing the stories that people are bringing to the table, but also realizing that sometimes you're dealing with somebody who's 50 years old and they've had 50 years of conditioning that you're now going to try and break. So, you know, if I had one message for parents, it would be, it's never too late. Please stop making this association between crap is going to make you feel good you know, if you have to do this thing, then make it right. We're going to make liver pate together. And then we're going to have liver pate for dinner, or we're going to have salmon tonight because we're going to learn all about the nutrients in it. Because we don't do that because it doesn't work. Salmon doesn't cheer you up in the way that cookies do, but just please break that association. So then what you're doing with the grown-ups is, first of all, you need to point that out to them. So this is where it's come from. Remember all your individual situations. Remember that time you got embarrassed in the school class and then what you did next and how it changed. Remember all of that. Be aware of them because you're going to have to break all of those. And then a couple of things are going to happen. One is you need a different crutch because this has been your crutch for 50 years, let's say, and you're going to need a different one because you're going to have a bad emotional, you're going to have distress, one of those other raw emotions, something is going to be distressful. And we are going to ask you not to then turn to your crutch. And that first period, I remember when I really did actually come off sugar for that first six months, it was hell. It was absolute hell because I didn't have my crutch But I had to say to myself, okay, so what I am now experiencing is raw emotion that up until now, for 20 years it was for me, up until now I've just tried to suppress with this fix that actually doesn't fix anything. It just doesn't. I've still got the emotion there. It's probably eating away at me inside. I'm not developing emotional intelligence. I'm not dealing with it. I'm not learning and growing as a person. So first of all, you've got to recognize what you're going through. If you can find another crutch and it's a healthy crutch, that's great. But I don't know many and I don't know many people who do. So a lot of people turn from food to exercise addiction or a lot of people turn from food to alcohol addiction or some people even turn from food to smoking addiction. If I'm smoking, I can't be eating a cookie at the same time as drinking a cup of coffee. And none of those are actually good replacements. You know, about the only good replacement would be if I feel emotionally upset, I'm going to do something positive. I'm going to phone a friend. I'm going to talk to someone who I know understands what I'm going through. I'm going to go in a forum like, you know, we've got, and I'm sure you guys have got, I'm going to do something positive to move myself away from this situation that I'm currently in. And then, so accept, be enlightened, understand what's going on, accept that you're going to feel pretty rubbish for quite a while. See if you can get another crutch If you can, that's great. If you can't, it's still not the end of the world because this is a gift. This is the biggest opportunity to learn and grow as a person that anyone is ever going to give you because you are now going to do, and unfortunately it might be at the age of 30 or 60 or even older, you are now going to do actually what you should have done when you were five, which is learn how to process emotion. So your boss was mean to you. What did your boss actually say or do? And how did that make you feel? And how can you then make sure your boss is going to do it again, either look and get another job or get another boss. But if you can't get out of that situation, you know, what do they say? You either accept a situation or you change a situation or you walk away from it. 
You don't accept your boss being mean to you. If you can't walk away from that situation, you've got to change something about it. So you need to change, you can't change what he or she does, but you can change how you respond to it. So next time they do that, I'm going to see it as an opportunity for me to grow and develop as a person. They're not going to grow and develop as a person because they're a mean person, but I'm going to take the opportunity to grow and develop as a person. So how did it make me feel? And what can I learn from that? How can I make sure that that mean person doesn't harm me by me going to the vending machine? Don't let them do something that's even worse. They've hurt you already. Don't let them hurt you twice by you going, you know, be stronger than that, be bigger than that. So it's such an opportunity and it's not easy And there's so hard days that it's just like, oh, I don't want to work out right now why my kids have just really annoyed me. But like, just give me the cookie this time. You know, like, no, 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 you can't do that. You can park it and not analyze it right now. Get through the situation, calm the kids down, get the household back to normal. And then you can deal with it at a time or think about it at a time that you might want to. But don't go back to that child who thinks the sweet is going to cheer them up because it didn't get you anywhere. It got you to where you are now, actually, which is a food addict. So that needs to stop. Yeah. Everything you just explained is exactly how we work with clients. It is. It's a lot of reparenting or parenting in general, right? If we didn't have that positive parenting interaction, as far as really teaching us how to manage those emotions, like not trying to eat them away or make them go right. That we got this message somewhere along the line that you shouldn't feel things or you should only feel good things. And so, yep. So absolutely. So thank you so much for giving us that suggestion. So this is where I do want to dive in a little bit more into your plan and how you've kind of broken it down into, you suggest carbs and protein at a meal, fat and protein at a meal, but never at the same time. And can you kind of explain to us why that reasoning and maybe give us an example of what that would look like in terms of meals, like how those two things would look very different? Okay. So it was an observation of what food actually is. And I remember when I was looking at food, so there's only three things that give us calories. There's fat, protein, and carbohydrate. We know those as macronutrients. And then I was doing this little diagram of, okay, you know, where do we get protein from and where do we get fat from? And I I just suddenly observed that nature provides fat proteins or carb proteins. It really rarely provides carb-fat combinations. So the fat proteins that it provides are basically animal foods, the things that vegans don't eat. So that's your meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. It's a combination of fat and protein. As you get sort of closer to the dairy end, particularly the fluid dairy, it starts to have a carbohydrate content, but it is still predominantly fat protein. Then you go over to the things that vegans would eat. And those are your carb proteins. So that's your grains, your beans, your pulses, legumes. Vegetables are essentially water. I mean, they're really not much more than water. So they're fine with either meal, particularly the the, the non-starchy ones, the low-carb things like berries, even things like tomatoes or whatever, they're all kind of, don't worry about those. They're all, you know, pretty good things and you should be able to have those with either meal. But nature only puts fat, protein and carbohydrate in the same foods in really rare occasions. So you're looking at nuts and seeds, basically. So if you think of nuts, they've got a good level of fat, a good level of carbohydrate, a good level of protein, seeds the same. They are really unusual foods in nature. Now, I don't know about you, but if I start eating nuts, I can't stop because they have that fat carb combo. And if I eat meat, I can stop. 
And if I eat brown rice, I can stop, particularly when they're on their own. I can stop because it's not that fat carb combo. So if I have, I mean, even bread, which for a lot of people is a trigger food, if it's a quality bread, like a sourdough, and you don't eat it with butter or cheese, you actually have a limit. Your mouth actually gets dry. You know, you have a limit of how much you could have. And if you're eating cheese on its own, you would have a limit of how much you could have. But as soon as you put the carbs and the fats together, it's as if we have no limit. And this is what the fake food manufacturers have worked out. So every fake food that we crave is that fat carb combo. And it's it's chips, crisps, cookies, ice cream, donuts, confectionery, chocolate, sweets, fat carb combo. Now, in one of my board positions, I was on the board of Cardiff Metropolitan University and they developed this food science lab. So the board members got the opportunity to go around the food science lab. So I'm actually going around it as a person who writes books on trying to stop people eating crap. And I'm thinking this is so interesting. And then there's all these little pens where they put students. That's why they do these on university campuses, because you can give a student, you know, five bucks and they'll do whatever you want for an hour. I mean, they're, they're such, you know, they're such cheap tarts. It's hilarious. So they go in these little booths and they put different colors around the booths. And then something is passed through the hatch and they are given this thing to eat and they have to rate what did you first think when you first put it in your mouth, when you, when you first saw it, when you first smelled it, then you put it in your tongue. Then when it went further back in your mouth, how long did you chew it for? How long before you swallowed it? What did you think when you swallowed it? Did it have an aftertaste? Da, 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 da. They fill all of this in and then they hand it back through the hatch and then they get given another version of that same food. And the food scientists behind the hatch are basically working on the absolute perfect dish. And it might be the perfect ready meal. It might be the perfect curry. It might be the perfect confectionery bar, ice cream, whatever. They are working on that bliss point. So at the point that all the guinea pigs are saying, that was it. That was the one. I would have eaten more of it. I just, you know, give me, let me go home, you know, with loads of this. That's when they knew they got the perfect product. And that's what they put on the supermarket shelves. So they know it's not just about the fat carb combo, that they know exactly the fat carb combo, the palatability, the linger, the aftertaste. They know all of that, the temperature it should be served at, everything. They know this is not left to chance. We cannot afford to go into that world because we're going to be in a real mess when we do. So that was one of the main reasons don't mix your fats and carbs because you're recreating that fake food that that food manufacturers want for you. A second reason is is going back to that hyperglycemia thing. So you want to start working with your body in terms of how it's using fuel because almost everyone who's a a food addict wants to lose weight because they've got to that level four and their behavior that is making them do something is the fact that they've gained weight. So they want to lose some weight. So you want to work with your body. And so you think about how the body uses fuel. Now, the body will use any carbohydrate or glucose if it's available. So if you've got any in the bloodstream because you've just eaten a bowl of porridge, it's going to use that first. If the body's taken the glucose out of the bloodstream and packed it away in glycogen, but you haven't eaten for a couple of hours, the body will go and use the glycogen. So it will look for that carbohydrate storeroom first. If you've got no carbohydrate, it will start using fat So if you're going to eat fat and carbohydrate at the same time, your blood glucose level is going to rise. Let's say you have bread and cheese. So the bread is going to make your blood glucose level rise. The body is going to want to use the glucose from the bread for your immediate fuel. And it's going to want to store anything else for later on because that's what the body does. That's how we've evolved to store food so that we survive the winter. 
So it wants to store the fat for later on, which is in the cheese. Now it can store the fat for later on because you just gave it carbohydrate, which is going to lead to insulin being produced and insulin is going to enable fat to go into the fat cells. So you've created the perfect fat storing environment. So you've got to stop doing that. So it also makes people realize when you get them into this carb fat meal mentality, they then very, very quickly realize, hey, do you know what? When I have a fat meal, I feel more satiated. When I have a fat meal, I don't feel that I need something else two hours later because that porridge didn't do that up and downy thing. Some people, fine, they can have porridge and they'll be fine. It will last them through till two o'clock, but you'll learn really quickly if you're not one of those. And then more and more, we see people in the forum saying, oh, I just feel much better when I have a fat meal. I don't feel hungry for much longer. I feel more satiated. And of course, the fat meal is actually giving you more nutrition. Because where do we find nutrients in meat, especially red, fish, especially oily, eggs, dairy, especially full fat? So they actually start feeling nourished. So it's not the case that you've just eaten 10,000 calories of junk and the body still wants all your vitamins and minerals. You've actually given it the stuff that it wanted. So it's like, okay, I'm all right now. So it's working much more with your body. And it's about a different mindset of the old mindset, and you talk about relatability, you guys will relate to this. We used to have good and bad days, yeah. We used to have, we were, everything was black and white. You're good or bad, and a good day, in your view, is a day when you ate, you know, nothing, 500 calories, or you only ate meat or something because you're on some new crazy diet or something. That's not a good day. We've had to reframe that as well. That's not a good day. But then it's also not a good day when you're binging on, on junk and feeling terrible. A good day is a day when you actually give your body what it needs and you nourish yourself. So you then get into the mindset of, it's not the disaster if I sit down and have bacon and egg for breakfast. That's actually starting to nourish myself for the rest of the day. And then if I have steak and salad and, you know, even berries and cream for afterwards, that's a good day because I nourished myself. I ate properly. And you just find that you don't have this desire to eat continually because you view your body in a different way. Yeah, it can be very challenging when we're working with individuals to kind of reframe that old antiquated thinking about nutrition. And But 100%, like you said, when they eat that meal and they get that feeling, they want to do it more. Although they still have some concerns about the cholesterol, all of the old, you know, <laughs> heart disease, all of the stuff. But like, I feel better. And it's really important for us to reinforce, trust your body right? Because they've lost that ability to trust their body for so long. So we do have clients who have PCOS. Would you suggest a different meal plan for these individuals or how might these meals differ for individuals with PCOS? Okay. Just not to lose that last point, just really quickly. That was the reason I did my PhD in the field that I did because you're trying to understand why the obesity epidemic came about. You have to go back to when did it actually start? And it started around the late 70s in the US and in the early 80s in the UK, about the time we changed our dietary guidelines to tell people you've got to eat low fat and high carb. And we changed those because we thought that you were going to end up getting heart disease, high cholesterol and all that kind of thing. So I needed to understand that. And to cut the long story short of three and a half years studying at PhD level, there is absolutely no evidence for that whatsoever. We have evolved to eat meat and fish and eggs and whatever the planet can provide for us. We have not evolved to eat the low fat margarines and the cereals, which is what the fake food manufacturers want to sell us. So just forget about it. Eat real food. Anyway, PCOS. So 
I'll give you something in the show notes so you can put a, a link in the show notes. I've actually got on OpenView on my site. I did a sort of special report on PCOS because it is a very common question that you get. And then you can share that with your guys. And I just sort of noted down the associations in this. I don't know how many words it is, a special report that I did. There were some really strong associations with PCOS and number one, factors that impact hormone levels, number two, obesity, and number three, insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. So what do I advise with people who've got PCOS on top, which is actually very common. And you can now see why, because years of overeating and eating flour and sugar, you're going to end up with obesity and insulin resistance and factors that affect hormones within the body. So they just go hand in hand. The good news is that there's um, a sort of a, a fix for it, which is to go as low in carbohydrate as you can tolerate. But that's also the bad news because for some people that is not what they want to hear. And I, I always sort of say to guys in the club, look, we're, we're all making sacrifices. We've got to, you know, we've got to be grown up here and realize, yeah, we could quite easily eat, you know, half a kilo box of chocolates, but we're going to make the grown up choice that says we're not going to do that. So we are making sacrifices all the time. And I do sympathize and say with PCOS guys, I'm afraid you're going to be making more sacrifices than the average person. Because whereas our guys, I mean, even the phase one, we're okay with brown rice, porridge, oats, quinoa, that kind of thing, the non-wheat grain. And then in phase two, particularly vegetarians will be having more carb meals than fat meals. So they'll be having brown rice and veggie chili or porridge for breakfast or bread with a vegetable soup or something. You know, those are more your carbohydrate meals. But for people with PCOS, they are just not going to help because you've got this insulin resistance. You've got this hyper proneness to your hormones not being of help to you. So I really would say to those people, try and see how low in carbohydrate you can go. So wherever you are at the moment, and when we're in the addiction world, I dread to think how many carbs we could have put into our body on, on one day. I mean, easily a thousand grams of carbohydrate. A moderate carbohydrate level would be defined by someone like Professor Tim Noakes as 130 grams of carbohydrate. So if you're north of that at the moment, try going there. If you can get under 100 grams, that's then your first step. And then I would actually say, do a little spreadsheet and see where your grams of carbohydrate are actually coming from. And so I remember helping a friend who was in this situation recently, who was on the borderline of type 2 diabetes and wanted to kind of pull back from it. And she was already quite low in carbohydrates. So I remember looking and there was, you know, the breakfast wasn't a bad thing. It was sort of fruit that you kind of, what well, I would have really fruit and berries and yogurt, sort of dairy and, and yogurt kind of thing. And the berries were okay, but it was sort of, she was having another piece of fruit with it. And it might have been a fruit salad from a shop and they're really quite sweet you know, they've taken all the skin off and it's melon and sometimes tropical fruits and all the rest of it, you know, fabulously delicious, but you're really whacking up the carb content and pointing out you could actually have been having 40 to 50 grams of carbohydrate with that fruit salad at the breakfast. So if you just dropped that, you've still got berries and you've still got yogurt, or maybe some days have eggs instead of the berries and the yogurt. And then you've really got it practically down to zero carbohydrate. And then when you're talking somebody through with their salad or something, you know, do you like tomatoes? No, not so much really. I just stick them on because it's a salad. Okay, so they're providing most of the carbohydrate in your salad. 
So how about you go for the lettuce and peppers and cucumber and celery and grate it all up, grate, you know, a bit of grated carrot or whatever. And then you've cut a little bit of carb there. And it was so easy just to shave off a bit. Of, you know, you reach for an apple late afternoon. Okay, what about you have a couple of squares of dark chocolate? Oh, I like dark chocolate. And if you're the kind of person that's not then going to want the whole bar, and we're talking really strong dark chocolate, then, and it's about then making those adjustments. But for the person with PCOS, the lower you can get your carbohydrate intake, the better it's going to be. The easier you're going to lose weight, the more you're going to be able to resist wanting more carbohydrate. Yeah, that's great information. I am a person with PCOS and I've mostly been around that 20 net carb marker just because of knowing how good it makes me feel and how it did help me release a lot of that excess weight I was carrying. But something that definitely I've noticed and, and I've definitely had clients notice too, it still feels like sometimes we can look at something wrong and we're still, right, we're still struggling with some of that carrying extra weight. Not that food addiction recovery is about weight release at all whatsoever, but just knowing that our body doesn't feel quite right and still wanting to have that, you know, that peace and that just that feel good that other people seem to have. So thank you for that information because it is a struggle. You know, it's like you're, you're literally battling hormones and metabolism stuff and the insulin resistance. And I had gestational diabetes with my first child. And so it's just this, right. So it's like, it's some of the things that we have to overcome and it's really comforting to hear that there is a way through or there are suggestions. So something we really wanted to ask you about, we try to ask many of our guests about this. We're also really interested in volume eating. And do you ever run into individuals with this volume eating aspect in your club or in any of your research, you know, where they may want to eat large amounts of food, whether it's fake food, drug foods, or, or real whole foods, you know, and what, if so, what suggestions do you give to your community? Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting one, actually. I remember um, doing a sort of open session. We have lunches with our club sometimes and we'll rock up at a, a restaurant. And there was one many years ago where there was a room above the restaurant. So we had a, a bit of a Q&A session to start with. And I remember somebody saying, um, you know, how much is too much kind of thing? And I said, oh, well, you know, that's a really good question. And I said, have you got any sort of guide? And, and this person said, well, I could literally eat a whole chicken. And I remember being really stunned by that because I could eat a stupid amount of junk food. I've never managed to eat a stupid amount of real food. And that did really surprise me. And I guess about the only advice that I was able to give, because I hate, you know, and these dietitians are like, oh, look at the palm of your hand or, you know, count one finger for how much cheese you should have or something. It's like, no, we're not counting again. We've been trying to get away from that. You know, we've done that all our lives, you know, leave us alone. We just want to eat real food and get on with it. But I guess it's a couple of tips. One is eat for the size that you want to be, not the size that you might be at the moment. Because if you eat for the size that you are at the moment, you're probably going to stay the size that you are at the moment. So I'm really petite. I'm sort of five foot two. I've got tiny wrists and size three feet. I'm not meant to be a big frame kind of thing. So I'm not meant to be a, a weightlifter or something like that. So if somebody my kind of build needs to be eating as if they want to be my kind of size kind of thing. And then I guess the other thing is we are in a situation when we can see other people eat on occasions. So I tend not to watch what other people eat, but you can. And it's quite useful, particularly around a buffet, to see how other people eat. 
And quite often you'll see, I mean, particularly America is just the worst, isn't it? Because you've got those buffets where it is literally just eat whatever you want. I mean, I'm more used to going to buffets in the Mediterranean when you go on holiday and it's a beautiful buffet of salmon and prawns and cheeses and salads and all the rest of it. And people just take an appropriate amount because there's only so much salad you can get into your tummy before you actually start feeling a bit uncomfortable. But I sometimes you can look at people, and, and this is not to judge, but to learn because other people can teach you things. So when you see somebody going back from one of those all-you-can-eat buffets and, and the plate is like a mountain and you see that the person is, is supersized and they've gone for the sort of supersized plate or whatever, it's like, that's not what I want to be doing. You know, you can learn from what doesn't look like a good idea as well as what does look like a good idea. And you'll see somebody else who you might think, oh, that person just looks a fairly normal size and they just seem to be putting stuff on and stuff that they liked and stuff they didn't like. And that looks like more kind of normal, normal portions. So I think it is very difficult. It's not normal for one person to sit down and want a whole chicken. It just isn't. People say, oh, you shouldn't have more than 100 grams of red meat. I think you should, because I think you'll find it more satiating. So if that's my main dinner on a Friday night, then my steak is going to be 250 grams. What is it in American money? Eight ounces or whatever, eight to 10 ounces. But I've been in the States a lot, particularly in the year before Corona nonsense. So 2019, I was in the States a lot. And often the smallest steak on the menu was 10 ounce. You know, it's like, do you want a 10 ounce fillet or do you want a 28 out sirloin or something? It's like, you guys nuts. You would never get that in the UK. You'd go into a restaurant and the biggest steak would be a 10 ounce sirloin or something. And the smallest might be a four to five ounce fillet. So it's not right that the portions that you've, you've got over there, it just isn't. Oh, I don't know. Does this help at all? If you're feeling over full or whatever, if you're still not losing weight, even if you're eating good stuff, you're probably eating too much. You know, good stuff shouldn't make you gain weight, but it probably can stop you losing weight. You know, once the body's gone looking for any glucose that's available, if there's no glucose available, it's going to look for fat. But if you've got dietary fat in your body, it will look for dietary fat. So, you know, to lose weight, first of all, you've got to get rid of any glucose. You've got to have insulin not present. You've not got to have another fuel source present, which would also be dietary fat. And then the body says, okay, I'm out of options, body fat. That's the next thing. That's where I'll go next. So you've got to give it a reason to go looking for that. And if you're eating an extraordinary amount of stuff, even if you think of it as good food, if you're putting a massive olive oil on your salad thinking that's healthy, olive oil isn't all that. It's got a couple of nutrients in it, a couple of vitamins, no minerals. It isn't all that. It's not going to help you lose weight. Yeah. I think that's important, right? It's just having those loving limits around what we're consuming. And, you know, we often say in the beginning, you know, eat, you know, what you need to get through that beginning transitionary period, right? Because of the withdrawal, but then try to figure out what your body actually needs. And for some of the individuals we work with, they do weigh and measure their meals to make sure that, you know, it's an appropriate amount and it keeps them kind of in line with their recovery goals. So individuals that are in your club, the ones that you see that do really, really well, what is it that they're doing that some of our listeners should try to incorporate into their recovery toolbox? 
Okay, no, that's a really good question. Do you remember when we all did our first calorie controlled diet and it was a real success? So the first one you go on is just brilliant. You buy the book, you read about the three and a half thousand calorie nonsense. You think I can do that. You learn the calorie content of every single food on the planet. And you think this is a piece of cake and you lose weight. You don't lose two pounds a week. That's when you should realize that the calorie formula is a terrible promise, lie, nasty thing, but you do lose some weight. And what is happening in that first situation? First of all, you've shocked the body a bit because you've never done that to it before. So every subsequent diet, unfortunately, is never going to be as good as that first one. But the other thing about that first one is you never question what you're doing. You just stick to it. You don't rethink. You don't say, oh, do I still want to be doing this? Or do I want to have cake when I go to that party on Saturday night? You just, you're in that mindset. I'm, I'm on this thing. I'm doing it. You don't even really have an end in mind. I didn't start it thinking, oh, I want to lose 10 pounds and then I'll be happy. It's just, I'm doing this thing. And you're in this mindset of I'm just doing this thing. And if somebody stopped you and said, why are you doing that? You wouldn't be able to answer them because you're doing this thing. Like, don't interrupt me. I'm doing this thing. And that's the mindset that you need to get back when you start doing what's right, which is nourishing your body, eating real food, avoiding sugar and flour, and, and yes, you know, I didn't mean to be disrespectful at all to people who are, you know, counting and, and weighing at all. I don't want dietitians telling us to do that. If I choose to do that because it's going to help me, then that's my choice. I just don't want to be told to only have a finger of cheese when more is going to be more helpful. But just get in the mindset of this is now me. This is not a diet. This is me. This is what I do. This is how I live. This is this is the choice that I've made. This is what I'm going to need to do. Don't think it's for the rest of my life because that feels a bit frightening, but just this is what I do today. This is how I eat today. We can worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. And then when you've got that in your mind, it's just don't rethink it. Just then get on with other things. I mean, the time that this frees up is unbelievable. How did I manage to keep my normal newsletter going and work going and keep the club going and all the rest of it and do a full-time PhD on top? Because I wasn't thinking about food at all. I have my breakfast, I have my lunch, I have my dinner. If I need something at four o'clock in the afternoon, I have something. And then I got all this time because I'm not thinking about that all the time. I'm not, I'm not binging. I'm not craving stuff. I'm, it just, it gives you your life back. And the more you crowd out the food problem with other more interesting things, the less time you've got for the food problem. And then suddenly you realize you're at the point that who you are is what you do, not what you eat and how food is defining you. So crowd it out and you can't crowd something out by focusing on it. Yes, you've got to focus on it in that early period because you're at great risk then of slipping back into your old ways. But the more, and it's not about becoming complacent either. It's a really fine balance. But the more you think, yeah, I've got this. I'm all right now. I'm on it. The more you can just let yourself get absorbed in work or get a new hobby or start doing a new thing, talking to friends or whatever, the more you can just move away from it and say, that's how I used to be. It's not how I am anymore. And there's a fear at the start that you're going to slip because you're not paying attention to it all the time. But there comes a point when it's the best thing to do to not pay attention to it anymore. Because when you're so busy studying a PhD, believe me, you're not thinking, do I want to go and buy an ice cream gatto? You haven't got the time to go and buy one. You've kept your blood sugar stable because you weren't eating a massively high carbohydrate diet. And you're eating mostly fat meals because you realize that that fuels your brain better for studying. And you just crack on with it. And then suddenly, you know, you're asking me about 
my eating or whatever. It's like, who was that person that used to do that, that used to sit in the college room and not be in the bar, but be eating the crisps and said, who was that person? That's, it's someone that you can leave behind. Yeah. It's, you're so speaking our language because I think, you know, earlier you said, you know, you have to be mindful of complacency, right? So we, there's a fine line between, we don't want to become complacent, but we also, like you said, like we have to grow up and we have to move on. We have to start right where we are and move forward and live the life we want. The food, the food thoughts, the food obsession, it's going to keep us stuck doing the same thing over and over and over again. And we're never going to get anywhere just thinking about it. We have to make a plan and just take the next right action. Eat the breakfast, eat the lunch, eat the dinner. Maybe it's eggs for breakfast. Maybe it's fish for lunch and maybe it's steak for dinner or some combination of those things. But just eat whole real foods, those low exposure foods for you in the amounts that are appropriate for you and move on is what I'm taking from all of that. And it's just, yeah, I mean, that's, it's beautiful. I I feel like that's what I'm basically preaching at my clients is not preaching at, (laughs) that's a bad way to put it, but trying to convey the behavior change piece of it with the client, right? Is like, we really have to behave in the way that we want to be. Yeah. Joe, someone yeah. gave me a really quick example, actually. If you see a child about to run into the road, you don't shout, don't run. You shout, stop. Because if you've got the word run in their thought in any way, they might run. But you've put something completely different in. And it's the same with food. Put something completely different in, and then you don't run. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to wrap it up because we know you have places to be and things to do for sure. So first and foremost, where can our listeners find you? Oh yeah. I mean, we've got a couple of sites actually. One is zoeharkham.com, which is quite easy. That's just my name. And I will send you the link to the PCOS thing because people you know, have found it really useful. And then we've got another website, which is where the club is housed, which is called Diet and Health Today. And that's where I do podcasts with all different people. That's where the forum is. And that's got the same newsletter that's on Zoe Harkham. I do this sort of weekly newsletter that I've been doing for over 10 years. There are over 500 now. And basically, I just take a, an article. So, that, I mean, the one I'm looking at this week, there was an article in the BMJ saying trade in red and processed meat has led to 5,000 deaths a year across the whole world kind of thing. It's like police. So I'll, I'll dissect it and I'll put it into an exec summary and into hopefully fairly simple language. There's quite a few doctors and academics that sign up to that. So I do put it at, at their level as well. But it's I kind of call in it dissecting those articles that, so that you don't have to. So when the dietary guidelines, for example, for Americans come out or whatever, are they good? You know, how did they come to them? Of course, they're not good. And how did they come to them through fake food conflicts? That's, a, that's another debate for another day. But it's that kind of thing that I do on a weekly basis. So zoeharkham.com or dietandhealthtoday.com, I think it is. Great. And that is what we need to do, right? Question almost everything we read these days, like dive a little deeper. We have our signature question and it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar addiction, food addiction, what would it be? Oh gosh. I mean, probably just that you'll get through it. You can get through it. And the other thing would be the only person who can get through it is you. Because there was a period of time, and I, I do remember it, I'd see a nutritionist in a magazine. I think, oh, if only I could have an appointment with them, everything would be okay. Or, you know, if only I could see a hypnotherapist or something, they can just hypnotize me and then I won't want this stuff anymore. If only, if only, if only, if only. And I suddenly realized I was just constantly looking 
for that sort of magic fix where somebody would help me. And I guess the day I really realized I need needed to do is this the day I realized that actually only I can do this. Other people can show me the way. So what I say to people now is I can show you the way. I can help you understand physically and emotionally why you crave food, but you have to do this. I mean, I guess one of the other things that I can stick on the show notes is I, I developed these two pieces of paper. I'm not going to read them all out, but I basically say to people, you've got to sign one of these. And one of them says, okay, I'm going to eat what I want when I want. I'm going to give into the cravings. I'm going to, you know, go and go seek my drug. I know this will make things worse, but at the moment I want the cravings. I want the cravings. I'll have my fix. And it goes on that. And the other piece of paper is obviously the opposite. I'm not going to do that. I know that I'm going to go through some pain. I know that there's going to be some emotional instability and discomfort, but that's going to help me grow as a person. And the real sort of aha for me, the absolute one specific thing was when I kind of put those two things down to say, okay, that those are my stark choices. I'm either going to keep doing this or I'm going to stop doing this. Then the one thing for me was if I'm going to stop doing this, I may as well do it now. I'm either going to live the rest of my life like that, or I'm going to live the rest of my life how I want to be, which is free from cravings, getting on with my life, not being overweight, being happy, knowing that I'm in control of food and not the other way around. So if I am eventually going to get there, and I really don't like where that is going to lead, because I could end up 200 pounds and diabetic, and I don't want to go down that route. So that really is the only route. We've got to, when we see the two pieces of paper, there is only one that you can sign. And then you say to yourself, so if I'm going to do that, I might as well do it now. Because it's always tomorrow, isn't it? Oh, I had a chocolate bar, right? I'm going to eat whatever I want today and then I'll start tomorrow. And when you're in that mindset, that's never going to happen. So if you're going to do it, it's got to be today. And it can be right now. And if you've just eaten a chocolate bar, that doesn't mean that today is a bad day. Today can start now at four o'clock as it is UK time. It doesn't start at midnight. You know, I'd be at a party sometimes. You'll relate to this as well. I'd be at a party. The clock would strike midnight. Right. I'm having a good day now. I'd just eaten every bit of leftovers in the kitchen that I could eat without somebody noticing what I was doing. But come midnight, it was like I was Cinderella and the clock starts again and I'm going to have a good day now. And for the rest of the party, I'd be on water. I wouldn't be eating any of the crisps. I mean, that's it. My good. Who invented that? I'm a Cambridge graduate. I am not stupid. That is stupid. Why not start at four o'clock and just say, right, I've had a chocolate bar. That's it. I'm not having another one today. This is not going to be a bad day. I'm not in that mindset anymore. I'm going to have to do this sometime. So I'm going to do it now. And that was it. I never looked back. Beautiful answer. Thank you so much, Zoe, for being here today. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Because you've got lots more of your day left than I have. (laughs) It's it's, it's getting dark here in the UK, actually. It's miserable. So I hope you have a nice day over there in the, uh, across the pond, as we say. You as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, 
the power is ours.